Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. sense to uh, talk about the covenant of redemption initially, but as we have the revelation of God's word, there is a progressive nature to it, and what we find is things that were somewhat shrouded or hidden in the Old Testament as we move through redemptive history and God continues to, to give us his special revelation, his word through the prophets and the apostles some of these truths become clearer and clearer. Things, as Peter said, which angels long to look into in former times, now have been brought into focus in the coming of Christ. And, and that is also the case with the covenant of redemption. Uh, it is something that I think becomes clearer and clearer to us as we come near to the advent of Jesus. And then also as we have the apostles and the writers of the New Testament helping us to understand some of these very high and lofty truths. I know there are many aspects of the created world that we really don't understand that well. And, and you know, especially for, for us, perhaps you, you have worked in a specific trade or a, a, a field of occupation and agriculture or in sales or in, in driving. And so you know your area fairly well. But when we think about all of the aspects of God's creation and how vast it is and how little we actually know, it can be a little overwhelming. Whether it is talking about the, the depths of space and, and all the things that are going on in, in deep space, the fact that we are one galaxy among millions of galaxies and these galaxies uh, have to use an, a measurement of light years in order to try and get a, a calculation of, of the size of them. And uh, it just is mind-boggling to us. Or, or we can think about even the, the molecular level of, of, of how tiny uh, and intricate God has made this world and the cells and atoms. And, and there are things going on that our eyes cannot see. And yet God holds us all together. And our minds simply can't comprehend the fullness of God's creation. Well, how much more when we think about the, the uh, world or, I guess, uh, God prior to creation. There was no world. And, and we think about the, the things that happened prior to the creation of the world. It is very difficult for us to, to really even fathom such a time. Uh, the fact that God is without beginning, he is without end, he is eternal. And yet, before God created all things, he was not bored, he was not lacking anything. He was content in the fellowship of the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Content and, and, and overflowing with joy and love in the fellowship of their persons. These things are, are very difficult for us to really begin to, to understand. And yet, we are told some things 
that did happen prior to God creating the world. And this uh, often is referred to as the covenant of redemption, um, an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit prior to bringing the world and bringing all of us into existence. And it is one of the the covenants that is probably um, least talked about, and yet it is so foundational to to all the others. And so I I find it uh, actually very sad that many mature believers in the Lord have never actually thought about or heard about the covenant of redemption. And perhaps even more tragically is many times when people encounter these truths in the scriptures, their reaction is to take offense and to be offended by these truths because it, it, it really elevates the, the, the sovereignty of God over all things, the purpose and the decrees of God over all things, and it, it lowers man into just that of a creature and someone who is dependent upon God. So the, the covenant of redemption um, is mysterious. It's not something uh, I think the, the Christians today talk enough about. But I pray we can at least get a, a basic understanding of this unique covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now last week we looked at the witnesses at Christ's birth. And we saw how those witnesses of the angels, of, of Christ's family, and then we had a remnant from Israel, believing Israel, Simeon and Anna, they were witnesses. We also saw even a remnant of the Gentile nations, the the wise men, the Magi coming. And all of them bear witness that Jesus is the promised one, the, the Christ, the Messiah. He's the offspring of Abraham who was promised. He's the descendant of David who would sit upon David's throne and reign forever. But as Jesus begins his ministry, we also find that Jesus was sent by the Father. And this coming of Christ into the world was according to an agreement, a plan, a covenant that was set into motion before the world began. And so we have to ask some questions about this covenant. Well, you know, it's one thing to to say, okay, there's a covenant of redemption. What is it? Uh, Who are the parties that are involved? What are the promises made? Who stands as the the federal head in this covenant? What are the implications of this covenant for us today? Uh, Those are all big questions and not sure if we'll, you know, answer all of them to your satisfaction, but certainly try to, to at least talk in brief about that. So to define the covenant of redemption just as um, best I can, the, the covenant of redemption, I would say, is the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem a people from out of mankind. It is the eternal plan of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to redeem a people from out of mankind. Obviously, God knowing well that man would quickly fall into sin and give themselves over to the prince of the power of the air. And God purposed and decreed that he would bring out for himself a people, a bride. And and each person of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, each have a unique role to play within this covenant, this plan, this agreement. The Father purposes and elects a people for the Son. The Son 
um, is the one who accomplishes the salvation. He is going to go, join to himself uh, human flesh, suffer and die under the law and be raised. And the Spirit of God is the one who is going to apply the work of Christ to the people that God has given the Son. And the Spirit of God also empowers and equips the Son to fulfill his work which the Father has given him. And so this is a, an incredible, and as I said, uh, a, a mind-boggling thing for us to consider. The, the eternal plan of God in our redemption, the Father, Son, and Spirit, before bringing all things into existence, setting forward a plan together, covenanting, to bring this into fulfillment. All of this to the praise of, glo- of God's glorious grace. And it's amazing, even as... Uh, you know, the, the children know one of the early questions that we ask in the catechism uh, is, uh, why did God make you in all things? Can anyone help me answer that question? Why did God make you in all things? <laughs> why? For his own glory. Thank you. That's right. For his own glory. And, the, and then as we look at how God glorifies himself in what he has made, it's actually in a selfless way as the Father sends the Son and exalts the Son, the Son humbly obeying the Father and, and exalting the Father and the Spirit being pleased to, to make much of the Son and make the Son known to the people. The way that God glorifies himself in creation is through the persons of the triune God serving and, and, and lifting up and pointing to one another. It is an incredible reality of our redemption. So this morning, uh, what I want to do for a few moments is look first at where this is alluded to in the Old Testament, even as we have read. Uh, I want to look where it is affirmed by Christ, and then also where it is assumed by the New Testament writers. And so we'll just be looking at a few scriptures and, and trying to look at the, um, where, where we find this covenant of redemption, this eternal plan of the Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem a people through the work of the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit. So in our scripture we read here this morning, Psalm 42 is part of what we know as the servant passages in Isaiah And it's fascinating that Isaiah, in in prophesying against Israel and against some of the godless nations around them, also is holding forth this picture of the servant of God who is going to come. And clearly, even, even Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would point out the fact that, that David, yes, and Isaiah, they, they, they write these things about current events, a primary application in their own time, but they're also pointing forward in a, in a typological way to Christ to come. And in fact, when we find Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, we'll look at that in a moment, it's these very scriptures that he quotes and points out that today in your hearing, these things are fulfilled. So what do we see in Isaiah 42 that we read? Well, we see the Lord is going to appoint his servant, he says, whom he will uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So we have God the Father appointing his servant, who we know is revealed as Christ. And we have also there in verse 1, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard. So we have the Father sending forth his servant into the world, the Spirit of God upon him, enabling him, empowering him to to proclaim justice to the nations. And we find that this servant in verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. And so we have this picture of the servant. In fact, in verse 6 there, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. So again, we have this covenantal language established. And what's interesting is we, um, next week we'll try to look at the new covenant uh, it, it very much flows out of this covenant of redemption. It is, it is coming out of it. The new covenant established with those who, with, who will believe in Christ and, and, and trust in him for forgiveness of sins. It flows out of this covenant, this promise of the Father to send the servant empowered by the Spirit to proclaim the word of the Lord and to bring light to the nations. We find in verse 7, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So God announces this even in Isaiah's time. And if we flip over a little bit further in Isaiah to Isaiah 50, as these servant passages continue. Of course, we're missing over a bunch, but um, we find in Isaiah 50 verse 4, we have the servant, as it were, speaking and speaking about the, the commitments that he will fulfill in this plan. Verse 4 of chapter 50 in Isaiah, we read, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by war- morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to those who are taught. To hear as those who are taught, sorry. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And so the servant willingly comes to do the will of God. And we already have this theme of the suffering servant building. He will give his back to those who beat. His his beard will be pulled out. He will be spit upon and mocked. And yet he entrusts himself to God to sustain him and to uphold him. He does not become discouraged. He does not become faint-hearted. He will continue to fulfill the work which God sent him. And we move on to Isaiah 52, and this becomes clearer, the, the suffering servant in verse 10. It said, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And move down to verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And moving into 253, we find that he is crushed by the will of God. In verse 5 of 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. But as the, as the passage concludes, we find that he is not abandoned by God. Though his grave was with the wicked, and it was the will of the Lord to crush him in verse 10, We find that in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. So Isaiah is pointing forward to a servant that will come according to the plan and the decree of God, the Father. And this servant will be empowered by the Spirit. He will proclaim truth. He will deliver the captives. He will will be um, salvation for the nations, the, the sprinkling of the nations for their cleansing. And yet he will be crushed even by the will of the Father, but then delivered And he will see the reward of his sufferings. Incredible accuracy with which Isaiah points to this reality. And this is according to the plan of this covenant of redemption. The the plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed upon even before the world was created. And so in that sense, this covenant is active and working throughout all of history. It is what... All of the saints have trusted upon the servant of God who would bring about their deliverance. We have the benefit of living in these last days and having the clarity of the New Testament, having the clarity of the the scripture. But for many of of these early writers, they they saw it as though a shadow, as though a type. They, They knew something of this Christ, something of this reality. But yet they still could not see the fullness of it as we enjoy through the account even of the Gospels. Maybe as an adult you've watched a movie uh, perhaps that you saw as a child. And in watching it as an adult you realize you really had no idea what was going on as a kid. And, and sometimes it's the most basic show. I remember even just watching uh, you know, Old Yeller a few years ago with the boys. And, and realizing for the first time, I actually had, didn't understand the story very well at all as a child. I mean, I kind of knew the basic ideas, but you had all these different things going on. Like, why did the, the dad leave? And what was he doing? And, and as an adult, I guess you have the, the context. You have a bit more experience. And so you actually understand the flow of the story. You actually understand some of the, the humor or the, the, the tragedies. Uh, as a child, you kind of just get the very basic outline of the story. And, and so it's been an interesting um, experience as a, as a parent to kind of relive some of those childhood memories that you have, whether it's a movie or a game or a story that you heard your, your parent tell a million times, but, but now as an adult, you actually begin to understand what that means. 
And in, in some ways, that is a picture uh, for us in the, the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Things that these old saints knew in part, but, but they couldn't see the fullness of it. Uh, in Christ, we get to have that blessing of a greater degree of light and explanation from the Lord God. Now, this should produce great comfort for us, and also it should produce within us a great confidence in God. That, that it's not as though each covenant that we've looked at was kind of a, an attempted plan of God that then failed, and God is trying to sort of stay one step ahead of, of sinful man and, and this world going into chaos. That's not the picture then. The picture is that God, before creating all things, already had in mind and, 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 and according to his purpose, a plan to bring forth the redemption of the saints. And so we can rest in his ability to, to bring this to completion, to sustain us in the days ahead, to also be faithful to the promises even of Christ's final advent and the glorifications of all things, because we see how he has been faithful in times past. So we see this covenant alluded to in the Old Testament. We also see it's affirmed by Christ in the New Testament. Um, as I mentioned, if you go to Luke 4, um, if you're able to follow along, if not, that's fine. I know it's a lot of turning and, and flipping in these uh, type of messages. But in Luke 4, it's important to note that as Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, Luke 4, um, 16, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So Luke 4, 16 here. Um, he's going to the Sabbath. He's going to read the scriptures. And where does Jesus decide to turn? Well, he gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So he didn't have a nice, concise book like we have. They were all, the, the writings contained on scrolls. And so he gets the scroll that Isaiah wrote. And he opens up to, to some of these servant passages. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are pressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and everyone's looking at him. They're, they're kind of waiting for, for what, what does this mean? Why did he read that particular passage? And then Jesus says this, 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 this blow of, of truth to them. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're thinking, well, this is Joseph's son. We know this guy. He's just a, a tradesman in the area. This, what is he talking about? And he rebukes them for their unbelief and points out that even in the times of Elijah, it was actually a Gentile who received the blessing of a miracle from Elijah while Israel in his time were left in their leprosy and sin and, and of course at that point they try to throw him over a cliff and this is the beginning of the ministry of Christ but he claims this title openly he is the servant he is the one sent from the father and he has come to do the father's will to fulfill this plan set forward by the triune God um, I just want to turn later in the ministry of Christ and I think it becomes very clear here in John 10. Um, it's again, sorry, I'm moving around so much. But as <clears throat> Jesus 
is going throughout his ministry. There's a, uh, there's a ton of passages we could look at, but he, he begins to speak very clearly and very plainly about the fact that he is sent by the Father for a specific purpose, according to the Father's plan. That's why he is here. And in John 10, 14, for example, we have one of these uh, comments by Christ alluding to this covenant of redemption. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus said, I did not come here on my own initiative. I was commissioned by my Father, and I was commissioned for a very specific task. I have come for the sheep. I have come to lay down my life for them, that they will be delivered from this domain of darkness and that they may come with me to be with me in my glory. And this all, Jesus says, has been decreed of my Father. And a little bit later in in, uh, chapter 10, John, in John's Gospel, excuse me, in verse 10, uh, 27, He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And again, the Jews pick up stones to stone him because he is making himself equal with God in these statements. But Jesus is pointing out that he has come to get the remnant, the people whom the Father has given him. He has come to make atonement for them by laying down his life, and he will raise it up again. And this is not something that is forced upon him. He does it willingly out of obedience to his Father. Now, if you go right to the end of John's Gospel, um, John 17, we see Jesus coming to the end of his ministry. And this, this covenant plan, this plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption, is so evident in this high priestly prayer of Jesus. As he is standing before the cross, as it were, and he is, he is praying to the Father. The very, the very prayer that he prays is just... It's just flooded with this covenantal language in verse 1 of 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have, been kept, they have kept your word. 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. And I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And Jesus goes on and just overflowing with the fact that that God the Father has given these people, initially the disciples and those who believed upon him. But even in verse 20, Jesus goes on and says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for the immediate believers around him. He also prays for us, for all those who will believe through the witness of these apostles and evangelists, that we may be one in Christ. And he is rejoicing that the Father has given this people to him. And he has faithfully fulfilled the task the Father gave him to preach the word, to gather these sheep. And as he goes to the cross, he will cry out, it is Finished. What is finished? All of the work that the Father gave him to do. And finally, the atoning of the sins of those, those sheep, those, uh, those, the bride that, that the Father has given to the Son. Christ completed it perfectly and thus fulfilled the covenant of redemption. So Jesus speaks of this often. And these are just a, a handful of scriptures where we find this truth coming out. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful reminder of the perfect obedience of Christ in every aspect of his coming. Not only obedience to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, but he also was obedient to the, the Mosaic Covenant. So he perfectly fulfilled all of the demands of the Mosaic Covenant, of, of the circumcision and the, the sacrificial uh, requirements at birth. We see him going to the temple, being dedicated to the Lord, the sacrifices made by his parents. And, and Jesus kept the law according to Moses as God had intended it. And Jesus made perfect atonement for us as the Father had sent him to do. And many times we ourselves fall short of our tasks, don't we? Sometimes we're given a job to do and we, we fail to, to, to meet all of the requirements. Sometimes because we don't maybe understand or sometimes we, we become lazy. Uh, I remember as a, a boy, um, my mom had sent me at the grocery store. I know for some of you mothers with uh, children, sometimes it's nice to send off the child into the grocery store to get some items for you to kind of help speed up the shopping process. Uh, especially, you know, somewhere like... Um, uh, Superstore where they got you know, this big store and it's one, one end I need diapers and the other end I need milk and it's like well I'll just send a kid in each direction and they can get the item for me we'll meet in the middle somewhere hopefully uh, and one time my mom asked me to get some 
bread and butter pickles. And I didn't understand that what she meant was the type of pickles, bread and butter pickles. And I was thinking bread, butter, and pickles. So I just went and got a loaf of bread. I went and got a block of butter. And then I just grabbed some random pickles off the shelf. And when I got back to mom, I thought she'd be very pleased with what I had done for her. And, and of course, uh, <laughs> she laughed and said, well, that wasn't quite what I had in mind. But uh, <laughs> I think she maybe kept the groceries anyways. And, uh, you know, in that time, I, I thought I was going to be praised for my fulfilling of this task from my mother and, uh, and realized that I completely misunderstood the instructions. And uh, perhaps at, at work or, you know, you, you work hard making a meal and, and you want it to taste good. You want the family to enjoy this meal and you, you want them to, 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 you know, the children ask for seconds. My wife feels like that, that's been a successful meal. And uh, we, we, we as people desire to, to complete a task well and to, to, to do our job uh, to, our, to our utmost best. But oftentimes we know we, we do fall short. We make mistakes. But if we look at the, the, the perfect obedience of Christ, it was a mission fully completed. Repeatedly, the Father would announce to the Son, announce to all those hearing, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Jesus perfectly did all that was purposed for Him in this covenant of redemption. And He kept it and fulfilled it. And so he reaps the, the blessings of it, which is the exaltation by the Father and the Bride to come. Now lastly, and just really quickly, there's not too many passages uh, here on the third point. So we've seen this covenant alluded to in the Old Testament and affirmed by Christ. And I say assumed by the New Testament writers because when, when the writers of the New Testament uh, mention it, it's almost in passing. It's kind of like they all, I would say, knew of this reality and they, they talked of it as like a common fact. And, um, and so we don't get a ton of explanation, but more the, the alluding to it, the assuming that this is a reality in which they are carrying out their ministry. For example, in 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul the Apostle, he's just... Uh, He's writing to encourage Timothy, and he's urging Timothy to, to continue serving the Lord uh, in this calling that he has been given. And uh, we read in, in verse 8, Paul tells Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. So he's Urging Timothy to press on. Don't, don't be discouraged. Even, even when you experience sufferings and persecutions. To, to press on Timothy. And then he sneaks in this uh, explanation of, of the gospel. Of, of this salvation in verse 9. of first, uh, Sorry, 2 Timothy 1. Verse 9. Um, so share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, who abolishes death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So Paul, he's, he's trying to encourage Timothy, but it's as though he can't help but just talk a little bit about the incredible gospel that has been made known. This was, was somewhat hidden in times past. It was a mystery. It was, it was known in part, but Paul's saying now it has been manifest in the coming of Christ 
this plan that God set forward, not because of our own works. We have not earned this. We haven't deserved it because of something we've done. No, it has been given to us in Christ before the ages began, Paul says. This, this plan of God, this covenant of redemption, the Father giving to the Son a people, Jesus coming and accomplishing the work of that salvation. And Paul says, now I'm a proclaimer, I'm a, I'm a preacher of this gospel that has been made known in Christ Jesus. And, it, and, and then he just continues on with his admonition to Timothy. And we'd want to say, uh, Paul, could you maybe just stop there a moment and give us maybe another whole book on just unpacking that a little bit more? Uh, maybe would, would help uh, with some of the divisions and arguments that take place over these things. But I mean, to me, just reading it, Paul is, is clearly alluding to the same reality. And in fact, uh, in another letter he writes to another pastor in Titus 1, at the very beginning, Paul kind of giving, a, in fact, I think a few times I've had uh, students, um, I don't know, Chloe asked me to do the philosophy of ministry. I remember at Bible school I had to do that. You ask a, a pastor or a teacher, the kind of philosophy of ministry. And I always point to Titus 1 because I feel like it's a philosophy of Paul's ministry. Uh, and, and in that sense, um, inspired by the Spirit of God. But we listen to Paul describing what he's doing and why he's doing it. He also alludes to this covenant of redemption. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So why is Paul doing what he's doing? What is driving this man? Why is he going from town to town being stoned and beaten and mocked and kicked out of the synagogues? He's, he's been kicked out of the, the whole pharisaical system that he worked so hard to, to, to obtain. Well, Paul says, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a servant of God, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And, and he says that this knowledge, which accords with godliness, it, it produces godliness in the hope of eternal life. God promised this before the ages began. And it's just now been revealed, manifested through the coming of Christ. And so Paul looks out across the nations and, and he's thinking to himself, I know that God has given a people to the Son. And the only way that these people come to saving faith in the Son is they hear the gospel of their salvation. And so Paul is going as though the shepherd who is searching out the lost sheep of Israel, the the people for whom Christ has shed his blood, and Paul is going and he's proclaiming the gospel, not knowing who might be among the elect of God, but knowing that they are there. And so it's as though the gospel ringing out across the air is the means at which these lost sheep hear the call of the shepherd. And they come to Christ and they begin bearing fruit of repentance and faith and the spirit of God applying the work of Christ in them according to this covenant of redemption is being carried out throughout the world. This is the commission. Jesus would tell his disciples, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to me. It's mine from the Father because I have fulfilled the work he's given to me. So now I want you disciples to go into every nation and proclaim the gospel, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded them, baptizing them as the covenant sign that I have redeemed them and they are set apart as a people for myself. You see, it all is flowing from this covenant of redemption. And Paul understood it. And people may say, well, a doctrine like that, well, that would certainly kill missions. That would kill evangelism completely. Not if you understand what the gospel does, how it is used by God to bring forth the salvation of the sheep. If you love Christ, then John says you will love your brother in Christ. You will love the sheep. And so if we know that this is the means by which the sheep come to the shepherd and are nourished, it would be cruel to remain silent. It would be, it would be absurd to think that, that we will sit back and, and just hope that somebody else take up the charge and, and pro- proclaim the news to these sheep that they may come to their Savior. No, we are compelled by love, with confidence in the saving power of God to bring about this plan through the means of the gospel. And so whether it is you know, passing someone a gospel track or talking to them about the things of the Lord or giving them a Bible or sharing with them, a, a, maybe a, there's tons of wonderful resources online where there are so many ways in which we can be a part of, of getting the gospel message out to the nations that the Spirit of God may be pleased to redeem them. You know, in the book of... In Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, this plan is kind of summarized in this picture of the book of life or the, the Lamb's book of life. And we're told both in Revelation 13.8 and in 17.8 that this book was written before the foundations of the earth. This plan of redemption, this covenant, there was a plan written down that this book, I mean, we don't know exactly uh, how that looks, but it's alluded to as something that was presented um, before the foundations of the earth as well, the, the, the people whom God has given to the Son. And so, we know that Christ fulfilled all that was required of Him in this covenant, and He, even now, is gathering to Himself all those whom the Father has given to Him through the gospel. And as Paul writes in Philippians 2, we find this picture of the finished work of Christ and the result of this covenant um, being kept by Jesus. Philippians 2, 8 and uh, following. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was obedient even to death on the cross, the Father was pleased to exalt Christ and to give him the name that's above every name, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and to Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess Because the Father is pleased and Christ fulfilled this covenant. And uh, we know Paul even 
in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things into subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And like, what is Paul talking about there? But essentially, the, the God has exalted Christ, and through Christ, there is now deliverance and, and dominion, and, and all of his enemies are being brought under his feet through the proclamation of the gospel. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then at the end, Paul says, as God gives all things over to his son, Jesus in worship and love for his father will then in turn hand everything over to the father to the praise of his glory and grace that God may be all in all. And we will stand as a people who are caught up in this covenant of redemption, in this plan of the triune God. And the church in that sense is really a gift of love from the Father to the Son, empowered and brought about by the Spirit. You see, we are caught up in the eternal plan and purpose of God. And can we possibly conceive a world in which this plan will fail? That God will abandon His people? That God will turn His back on this plan? Walk away from the church? No, God certainly will not. Christ has fulfilled the demands of this covenant and now is reaping the blessings and the benefits. And Christ stands as the federal head for all who trust in him. And we will look next week at how the new covenant flows out of this as Christ establishes it in his blood. But we have opportunity this morning to remember the Lord's table together, thinking about the pinnacle of Christ's obedience in his death and resurrection. And so let's pray and we will take the Lord's table together. Bow with me, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit that you have poured out, Lord, upon all flesh that we might not only read but also begin to understand and, Lord, conceive something of this mysterious and glorious plan that Lord, you have set forward. And we see, Lord, throughout history, though man is continually rebellious and wayward, that you are steadfast and faithful. And you bring about the fullness of this plan in Christ. And we thank you for his perfect life of obedience at every level. Lord, his, his pleasing work and obedience, his proclaiming of justice, the delivering of the sick and the blind and those in bondage of sin. And Father, for his life poured out upon the cross and then raised up on the third day. Lord, help us to have a deep confidence in your ability to keep us, to hold us. Lord, would you give us urgency in our lives as we live in these final days, Lord, to, to be about your work in our own hearts and our families. Lord, that we would be seeking to 
Use all of our resources to the advancing of your kingdom, to the proclamation of this message, Father. We pray that you empower us and guide us into a new year. And we pray all this now in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.